So for those of you who haven't been, haven't been coming to this series, uh, we, are, we are coming towards the end actually of a, uh, a fairly long series of talks on what's called the Sevenfold Puja, which is a, an important ritual that we in, the, in this movement practice together. Made up of uh, seven stages, seven... Um, each stage is a number of verses, including some chanting. So um, what we've been doing these last few weeks is we've been looking at each one of the stages. So we've had a different member of the order every week coming to speak to us about each one of the stages. We began right back in January with a really quite extraordinary talk about the text from which the Sevenfold Puja is taken, a text called the Bodhichaya Avatara by Shantideva. And it really was a very, very good talk. And I would recommend you listen to that talk if you haven't already. It's on our website, I believe. You can download it and listen to it. Now we've had some really good and very interesting and very varied talks on each one of the sections. But I was thinking over the weekend that as far as I can remember, nobody has given yet has given an overview of the whole puja. We just, uh, even the first talk, um, Vidanya from Sheffield, when he was talking about the Bodhisattva I don't think he gave a kind of an overview of the puja. He just talked about the text from which the puja is taken, um, which is this text here, the Bodhisattva Um And I, the, I've missed one talk so far. I, I missed Daimala's. So she may have done this, but um, I thought it would be good just to give a bit of an overview of all the first six stages of the puja. And this, well, I'm going to be talking about the sixth this evening. So, uh, but before I do that, th- I think it's worth saying that the sevenfold puja, I think we often think of it as uh, a practice to help us develop faith. And it is that but it's also much more than that. So the Sevenfold Puja comes from the great tradition called Mahayana, the great way to enlightenment, which arose in the East about 500 years after the death of the Buddha. And what the Mahayana really emphasised was that when you practice the spiritual life, you're not just doing it for you. Probably they would say a bit more than that, or I would say more than that, that it's not actually possible just to do it for you. The idea that you can practice the spiritual life for your own benefit is a mistake. Uh, it's something that we all do, I think. It's most people, when they come along to the centre, that's, those are the terms in which they're thinking. And we often do sort of assume that that's what we're doing. But as you get more into the spiritual life, you begin to realise that actually it can't work like that. You can't look after yourself in that kind of way. You have to give yourself to others in order to progress and develop. You have to give yourself to the world, the universe. And that's what the Bodhisattva tries to do, and in many cases has done. So the Bodhisattva, you could say, is the, the practitioner of Mahayana Buddhism, the ideal, perhaps, practitioner of Mahayana Buddhism. And the Bodhisattva is someone who practices for the sake of all beings, not just for their own sake. And they always bear that in mind, whatever they do. 
And the, uh, the bodhisattva is someone in whom the bodhicitta has arisen. So we need, I need to define some terms here. Bodhi is enlightenment or awakening. Let's, let's say awakening. I prefer that translation. Uh, sattva is being. So a bodhisattva is a being of enlightenment. They're not enlightened, but so, uh, some, sometimes they're translated as uh, awakening being. Not an awakened being, but an awakening being. So a bodhisattva is someone in whom the bodhicitta has arisen. So what's a bodhicitta? Bodhi, awakening. Chitta is mind. So it's the awakening mind has arisen within this person. And when the bodhicitta arises within you, that represents a great turning about in your whole way of being. Um, not only your mind, but your heart, your actions, everything. You, you, you just become a very different person. When the bodhicitta has arisen within you, you are no longer thinking in terms of your own spiritual development. You're thinking in terms of the whole world. It's not that you leave yourself out, but it's more like there's a kind of self-forgetting uh, involved with the spiritual life. And I'm sure we've all experienced this sometimes when we're so involved in something, maybe so involved with helping somebody. If anybody's got children, you know what this is like when you're really trying to help your child with something like homework or how to ride a bicycle, anything like that. Sometimes you get so involved in it, so involved in the other person that there's a kind of, what I sometimes think of as a blessed self-forgetfulness. Such a relief to forget yourself about sometimes and think about other people. And sometimes it happens in other ways. Um, uh, sometimes in your work when you really have to look after somebody else. You know, it's like you just forget about yourself. So the Bodhisattva is someone who's trying to do that with their lives. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because the Sevenfold Puja is a Mahayana practice. It's a practice for the Bodhisattva or the would-be Bodhisattva. And according to tradition, it's, it constitutes one of two ways in which the Bodhicitta can arise. Two formal ways, let's say. One is the, uh, a practice or a number of practices um, developed by... Uh, an ancient Indian teacher called Vasubandhu. It's called the Vasubandhu's Four Factors of Awakening, but I'm not going to say anything about those. You can read up about those later if you want. Google Vasubandhu. Uh, but the other way is practicing the Sevenfold Puja. So this is really significant, I think, that the Sevenfold Puja isn't there just to make us feel more faithful and more devoted, although it does have that effect, or can do. It's actually a practice to help us allow ourselves to open up to the rising of the bodhicitta, which will change us irrevocably. So how does it do that? Um, it do, does it by going through the seven stages, and we've looked at five so far. So just to recap, the first stage is worship, uh, which actually, worship is a translation of puja. So puja literally means worship. Uh, where... In, in the text, in the, in the puja itself, you imagine yourself worshipping millions and millions of Buddhas in all the directions. Yeah. Then the second stage is salutation. Sometimes people wonder what the difference is between puja and salutation. And The way it's been explained to me is that in salutation, you're taking your worship a step further and you're actually expressing it. 
with your body. So very often in, in the salutation section, people will actually um, prostrate or bow down to the Buddha. So there's this sense of one's whole body being involved with that worship. Then the third stage is going for refuge. And going for refuge is Sangrakshita, our teacher, calls that the central Buddhist act. So on the basis of your worship and your salutation, then you go to the next stage, which is where you dedicate your whole life to practicing the Dharma. You dedicate your whole life. So going for refuge is a very definite commitment to practice. So worship, salutation, and then deep, wholehearted commitment to the three jewels. Somebody mentioned uh, on one of these talks that uh, sometimes when we say these verses, they're really, really quite strongly put sometimes. And uh, there's a danger that sometimes people feel they're being a bit fraudulent and we say, uh, I go for refuge to the three jewels for the whole of my life. And you think, have I committed to that? I don't know. Um, and what that person said, whoever it was, they said, don't worry too much about taking it all literally. The idea is that you're rehearsing. So the sevenfold puja, if you like, is a rehearsal of the spiritual life. We're rehearsing. There's a... There's, something in modern philosophy I haven't tracked it down properly yet but there's this idea that um, as if you act as if this were the case yeah just imagine that all things are impermanent and insubstantial and you sort of half believe it but never mind act as if that were the case and you'll begin to see that it is the case so when we bow down down to the Buddha and say we're going to go for refuge for the rest of our lives there's a little part of us thinking "Mm, am I don't worry about that just we just do the puja with whatever part of us is able to do the puja whatever part of us is present so then comes an interesting thing because after the going for refuge comes a kind of um, interlude where we chant the refuges and precepts the refuges and the five precepts. So why do we do that? Because that is the natural extension of going for refuge, is that you begin to be more ethical. So ethics, ethical behaviour, comes out of going for refuge to the three jewels. As you all know, I'm sure, when you think of the threefold path, ethics, meditation and wisdom, ethics is the one you begin with. So if you're going to go for refuge, if you're going to devote yourself to living the spiritual life, first thing you have to do is do something about your ethical life. So you chant the refuges and precepts. Then, fourth stage is... You okay? Fourth stage, we uh, confess our faults. Now, this can sometimes be problematic, but I believe this is the week I wasn't here, but I believe Diamala did a very good job of winning you round on this one. We confess our faults, and that's because... When you start looking at your ethical behaviour, you can't help but see some flaws in some of your thinking and the way you've spoken to people and the way you've behaved sometimes, just very occasionally. So you confess that. You, you sort of openly acknowledge that to the Buddhas and so that you can move on, so that you can have a clear conscience. Having a clear conscience is seen as really, really important in Buddhism. Of course you're going to be unskillful. Everyone's unskillful until we're enlightened to varying degrees. 
you can't not be unskillful because you've got a self and the self wants to protect itself. So very often we, we just lapse into unskillfulness. That's fine. But uh, the problem with unskillfulness, apart from the fact that it hurts you and others, is that it can leave a stain if you're not very careful. It can leave you with a bad taste in your mouth. So with some things, anyway, you need to just get them off your chest. You just say, look, at least even if you only do it between you and the Buddha, you say, as it were, look, I've done this and I've said this and I've thought this and I'd like to leave it behind now. So at that point, you leave it behind. Yeah, and now you have a clear conscience. Remember, this is all to do with the arising of the bodhicitta, that turning, that great turning uh, of our lives. Next stage, rejoicing in merits. So now you begin to rejoice. Something that people hardly ever say, and I, I don't think uh, either of us speak, well, I don't know, I wasn't here for Diamalas, but I know Buddha Shanti didn't really make much of this, is one of the things I find interesting about the puja, you confess your own faults, and then you rejoice in other people's merits. It's an interesting idea, that, isn't it? Of course you can rejoice in your own merits, but in the puja, you are rejoicing in the bodhisattva's merits. You're very much rejoicing in the fact that beings exist who are much further along the path than you are. And you think, isn't that just great? Isn't that fantastic that people are further along than me and they can teach me? And you just feel so happy about that. You're already happy because you've worshipped and saluted the shrine and you've gone for refuge and you've confessed your faults, you've left all that behind, so you're already happy. And now, rejoicing in merits, you get really very happy. There's this sense of, well, joy. Promodina, isn't it? Promodina, which is rejoicing in other people's merits, that sense of, isn't it just great that other people around who are really getting on with the spiritual life and helping other people and much wiser than me? You just sense that sense of uplift. And then we come to the sixth section, which is what we're going to be looking at this evening. And the sixth section is entreaty and supplication. There's a couple of old-fashioned words for you, isn't there? How often do you use those words in your everyday life? Entreaty and supplication. I entreat you. Um, So what's all this about now? So now, this seems to me a very, very important stage of puja. Very important indeed. Because now, after rejoicing that the fact that there are beings who are much further along the path than you are, You implore them to help you. I say the word implore because it's quite a strong word. You don't ask them, you implore, you entreat, you supplicate. Please teach me the Dharma. And uh, you might think, well, if these bodhisattvas have done this great big turning about and all they're living for with other people, why do they need to be asked? Why do they need to be implored and entreated and supplicated? Well, they don't. They're teaching all the time anyway. It's not for their sake you're doing the puja, it's for your sake. The reason we do the entreaty and supplication is for us. Yeah. We have to ask for the teachings. Yeah. It's really important to ask for the teachings. It's really important to really want the teachings. In a sense, it's not enough just to listen to the Dharma by accident. Oh, oh yeah. You've got to really, really want the teachings. Um, 
couple of months ago I went to a concert at the Royal Northern College of Music and Teresa was there. It was Imogen Cooper, is that right? Imogen Cooper, playing Schubert. And it really was a fabulous concert, just out of this world. <laughs> and she didn't, she didn't play that. <laughs> that isn't Schubert, is it? <laughs> Afterwards, I was talking to my friend Aparajita, and I told him I'd been, and he said, oh, yeah, she's really good. And uh, he, he told me this story about her. I don't know that I've got this completely right, but as I remember it, uh, Imogen Cooper, her teacher was Alfred Grendel. And apparently, when she was young, a student, she either wrote to Alfred Grendel, I think she wrote to him, and she said, uh, I really, really need you as my teacher, and... If you don't become my teacher, I'll die. <laughs> Apparently. And so he wrote back and said, well, we can't have you dying, can we? <laughs> so he became her teacher. And I thought that was just so fantastic. This woman who really, really needed Alfred Brendel to be a teacher and made that clear to him. I really need you to be my teacher. And uh, uh, just to carry on the story just a little bit further, apparently in their first lesson, hour-long lesson, they just concentrated on a chord. She just played a chord and he gave her feedback and she played it again and again to get the balance right of the chord. Now that, it seems to me, is the kind of attitude that we would ideally have when it comes to the Dharma. You know, really asking for the Dharma, and then really taking it seriously. That chord, just remember that chord. Yeah. Um, so then, I was thinking, there was quite a few stories in the Buddhist tradition of people going to great lengths to get a teaching. And uh, one of my favourite texts, the Sutta Nipata. Fifth chapter, the final chapter, the way to the beyond. There's this story the story of somebody called Bhavari who's a Brahmin and he's got 16 pupils, students and he's heard about the Buddha and he's asked his students, presumably he's too old to go uh, but he asks his students to go and uh, get some teachings from the Buddha and he praises him at great length and so um, so when Bhavari had finished his instructions to them they carefully paid their respects and walked past him to the right. Remember me saying that the reason we sit not facing the shrine in Puja w- w- with our side is because this is, this is why, because uh, it's seen as um, uh, disrespectful to face someone head on. So you face them with your side. So there they go. Uh, walked past him with him to, to his right. With their hide robes and their braided plaits of hair, they set off towards the north. They travelled through the land of the Arlakas, coming first to Patitana, then to Mah- Mahosati, Ujjaini and Godadanya. should have practised this, shouldn't I? On they went to Vedisa and Vanasa, to Kasambi and Sarketa, until they came to the greatest of all cities, Sarvati. From there, they set out again, this time for the land of Magadha. 
They passed on their way through Setavia, Kapilavatu, and the town of Kusinawa. They went on the Parva, the Boginagara, the city of wealth, and then to Vaishali, where they came to the beautiful Pasanaka Chetia, the rock temple. It's quite a lot of travelling, isn't it, on foot? They climbed up the mountain path with the zeal and haste of a merchant drawn to wealth. Or a thirsty man to cool water. Or a man with sunstroke to shade. That is the sense of urgency. The sense of importance. The sense of absolutely I must have this thing. That we are trying to develop in the sixth stage of the puja. And there, with the order of monks gathered all around him, sat the Lord, the Blessed One. He was explaining the Dharma to them. The lion was roaring in the jungle. Fabulous. And then I'm reminded also of Bahia, the famous story of Bahia. Bahia lived on the coast of India, south coast near Bombay, uh, west coast. And uh, he wasn't a Buddhist. Even, well, he's a long, long way. For, he, we would have never heard of the Buddha. He was miles away, 840 miles away from where the Buddha was. And uh, he was getting on with a kind of a spiritual life. And he began to wonder whether he'd made it. Have I maybe reached the goal now? And a friendly Deva came along and said, no, you haven't reached the goal, you're a long way from the goal. So uh, he didn't take offence, Bahia, and he said, well, is there anyone in the world who has? And he said, yeah, there's the Buddha. And he said, the Buddha? Well, where can I find him? And the Deva told him. So he travelled on foot 840 miles to see the Buddha. Walked every day. <laughs> Got there. Asked, where's the Buddha, where's the Buddha? Found him. The Buddha happened to be on his arms round. And without stopping, he just went up to the Buddha and said, Buddha, please teach me. And the Buddha said, mm, well, you, you come at a difficult time because I'm actually um, begging for food at the moment. And it was the custom that you never spoke when you begged for food. So he couldn't speak to the man. So Bahia was a bit taken aback. He travelled 840 miles. He needed some teachings now. So he said, but... You know, we don't know what's going to happen, do we? We don't know what's going to happen next. I need some teachings now. So at the third time, it's the Buddhist custom, the third time he's asked, he always answers. So he gave him a very pithy teaching. Bahia gained enlightenment on the spot. (laughs) Why? Why? Because he really, really, really wanted that teaching more than anything else in the world. He was prepared to give up his life on the coast. He, was prepared, he had people looking after him. He was a very revered spiritual teacher. He gave all that up. He walked across India on his own to meet the Buddha because he really wanted the teaching. This is what we've got to try and develop. This is the sevenfold puja helping us develop this. And then I'm thinking of some of those amazing Chinese and Japanese who found out about the Dharma in the Middle Ages. And they travelled across the continent to India to meet Buddhist teachers so they could get teachings and take them back. Japanese teachers who uh, um, died in shipwrecks because it was so, or, or they were killed by robbers on the Silk Road. Really dangerous thing to do. They did it because that's, they really wanted it. So, it's quite a thing, isn't it? We must really, really want the teachings. So the entreaty and supplication is helping us to really want the teachings.
And then, of course, when you've got the teachings, no, when you've said that, when you've asked, when you've implored, uh, let's see, entreaty and supplication. I looked up the two words in the dictionary. Entreat, to plead for, to ask earnestly for, to beseech, to implore. Supplicate, to beg or entreat humbly, to present a humble petition. So this is what we're trying to do. This is what we try this is the state of mind we're trying to get into. Because then immediately after the entreating supplication comes a wisdom teaching. This is really, really important. It seems to me this is the heart of the sevenfold puja here. Then comes a wisdom teaching. The whole of the puja, the first six stages up till then, have been a preparation for the Dharma. That's why the sevenfold puja isn't just a devotional exercise. It's a practice to to allow the bodhicitta to arise within you on. A deep change of heart, you could say. Um, A change of mind. Insight to arise. So the first few lines of that wonderful text, the Ratnaguna, Samshaya Gata, my favourite text. Call forth as much as you can of love, of respect and of faith. Remove the obstructing defilements and clear away all your taints. Listen to the perfect wisdom of the gentle Buddhas. Talk for the wheel of the world, for heroic spirits intended. Call forth as much as you can of love. Love. Before you hear the Dharma. Love. Amazing, isn't it? The word love, the Sanskrit word, it's been translated by Edward Konzer as love, is uh, prema, which is the Sanskrit form of pema, which is usually thought of as a negative emotion. It's the near enemy of metta. You've got metta, which is loving kindness, and pema, which is attached love. Sometimes it's called sticky love. It's that kind of love you get into where it all gets really difficult between you and the other person. Sticky love. But here, it also means affection. Here, it's used in a completely different sense. The Buddha is saying you need to love the Dharma. So you need to call forth as much as you can of love for the Dharma. Of respect. Respect is from the word, uh, the word the, is uh, garavar. Garavar, which comes from the word guru, which means weighty or heavy. Weighty or heavy. In other words, significant, of great significance. Respect. Respect the Dharma. It is of great significance. It has got something to tell us which we don't yet know. And that something is really, really important. Respect and faith. Now, the word Konza translates as faith is very, very interesting. Prasada, prasadu which means faith, but if you look in the Sanskrit dictionary, that's not the first word it comes up with at all. It means clearness or clarity, brightness, pellucidity. It's an evening for old-fashioned terms there, isn't it? Pellucidity, lucidity, I suppose. 
purity, calmness, tranquility, absence of excitement, serenity of disposition, good humour and mediation. But for some reason, it's nearly always translated as serene faith. Don't quite know why, because it hasn't got faith once in, the, um, in that definition, but never mind. So it means all those things. Now, I know I've said this a number of times to a number of you already, but I'm going to say it again, that the word prasada is very interesting in that it means faith, but it also means clarity, lucidity, brightness. Very, very interesting. And it points, I think, to a very strong connection between faith and wisdom. Um, in Buddhism, faith is very, very closely connected to wisdom. There's the um, Melinda Panha, which is the questions of King Melinda. King Melinda was a Greek king, Bactrian Greek king. And he got to know this Buddhist monk called Nagasena. And this book, The Questions of King Melinda, is basically a series of question and answers between the two. So one day the king asks Nagasena, what is the characteristic mark of faith? And Nagasena says, there are two characteristic marks of faith, O king. And he says, what are they? So uh, he says, one is... um, Aha, I can't remember. Uh, One is... Oh, yeah, yeah. Tranquilisation. It's a weird term, isn't it? Tranquilisation. In other words, it helps you to become tranquil. That's one mark of faith. And the other mark is aspiring. So those are the two things. It tranquilizes you and it helps you to aspire. So then um, the king said, give me some similes to help me understand. So the first simile is this. Uh, A king and all his army are travelling across country. Elephants, horses, carts... You know, thousands of people cross cross country. They come to a river. They have to cross the river. They cross the river. After they've crossed the river, the king says he's thirsty. The river, you can't drink the water now because it's completely, the mud is everywhere. Completely muddy river. It's no longer clear. Not to worry, though, because the king owns the Prasadamani, which is the wish-fulfilling jewel. Great. So they get the prasadimani out and they put it in the water and it completely clears the water. It's a magic jewel. Makes the water completely clear. Prasada mani. It's the prasada jewel. Uh, so in the same way, uh, Nagasena is telling this king, in the same way, the, um, when you have the mental state of prasada, it clarifies your mind. And it clarifies your mind specifically of the five hindrances to jhana. I won't go into those because already I, th- I suspect I've been going along maybe a bit too long already. So I won't go into that, but clarifies your mind of all mental, negative mental states. That's the first simile. So the second simile to do with aspiring faith is this. There's been a flood and some people are standing on one side of a very flooded, swollen river and they need to get to the other side. This is classic Buddhist territory, this, isn't it? You need to get to the other side. The other side, of course, is enlightenment. 
And they're standing there, wringing their hands, going, oh, how are we going to get across? How are we going to get across? Then a strong man comes along and leaps right across the other side. Leaping faith. It's a leap of faith. He just leaps from one side to the other in one step. And that's aspiring faith. So what that means is that faith can help you become enlightened. It can be the thing to help you become enlightened. And um, we see this at the end of the Sutta Nipata that I mentioned earlier with um, that wonderful man Pingya. Marsh Radha talked about this a few weeks ago in the Going for Refuge section, but uh, at a certain point, the Buddha says this to Pingya. Pingya, other people have freed themselves by the power of faith. And he mentions three people, Vakali, Badravuddha and Alava Gotami, Gotama have all done this. You too should let that strength release you, faith release you. You too will go to the further shore beyond the draw of death. I don't know how many of you have read The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. It's a really, really interesting book, written at the turn of the last century. Uh, William James the f- is often f- spoken of as the first um, psychologist, isn't he? But he interviewed loads and loads of people about their spiritual experiences. And, and a number of people were doing this. And he's, he uh, quotes Professor Luber, who was doing the similar kind of thing. And eventually, after interviewing many people about their spiritual experiences, Professor Luber came to think of a spiritual experience as being what he calls the faith state. The faith state. And this is his his description of the faith state, having uh, talked to many, many people about it. When the sense of estrangement, fencing man about in a narrowly limited ego, breaks down, the individual finds himself at one with all creation. He lives in the universal life. That state of confidence, trust, union with all things, following upon the achievement of moral unity, is the faith state. Very, very interesting, isn't it? He does mention God somewhere in this quote, but I've decided to take it out because that, it makes perfect sense without a belief in God. So when the sense of estrangement you know, when you become estranged from someone, you can become estranged. Someone you used to love and now you're estranged from them. I looked it up in the dictionary a little while ago and it means um, external to. You become external to that person. So in that sense of estrangement, that sense of being external to life, to other people, fencing man about in a narrow, lim- limited ego, when that breaks down, you find yourself at one with everything. Then you live the universal life. This is the state that I was talking about, the bodhisattva state, the bodhicitta. It's that turning about when you no longer live for yourself. You're living for the whole world. That state of confidence, trust. Now, it's interesting he uses those two terms because uh, faith is often, or shraddha, uh, uh, another word for faith, is often translated as confidence, trust. Union with all things following upon the achievement of moral unity. 
So now we go back to going for refuge and then the, the, um, the precepts, moral unity. That is the faith state. And this is what we're trying to get to in this sevenfold puja. Better look at my notes. I haven't looked at them once so far. Where are we? Uh, you have to really want the teachings. Yeah, got the stories in. Yeah, so what I've been thinking about with the sevenfold puja is the first six stages, including this one, including entreaty and supplication, are in a way preparatory. They're preparing us. They're getting us into a certain state from which we can really receive the Dharma so that we can really change. Uh, I'm sure you've all come across the, the, great, the two great stages of meditation. In nearly every Buddhist tradition has these two great stages. The first stage is samatha, meaning concentration or absorption, calm, stillness. We have to calm the mind, become still, become concentrated and absorbed and emotionally positive makes you a much happier, healthier, more helpful human being. But that's just the stage. The reason we do that is really so that we can prepare ourselves for the second stage, vipassana. Vi is a positive prefix meaning really, and pasana is to see. So we're in vipassana, we're really trying to see. We're really trying to see reality. First stage is made up of practices of meditation and experience of the four jhanas. And then the second stage, vipassana, is contemplation, insight meditation, where you just hold a teaching in your mind. You don't think about it. You've done all your thinking and you're studying and you're discussing and you're disagreeing and coming round and resolution. You've done all that before. There's no need to do that now. You hold the teaching in your mind quietly. You do nothing else with it. Um, Karma Sheila puts this very well in his book on meditation. He says, It is rather like gazing at a lovely jewel that has been laid on a piece of dark velvet cloth. We do not have to make any effort to see its beauty. More and more beauty simply reveals itself as we become more accustomed to looking. At this stage, we do not even try actively to understand anything. We simply allow ourselves to be affected by the truth, by the reality of our contemplation. Now, Kamala is talking in terms of meditation here and the two great stages. He's particularly talking about Vipassana. He's not talking about the puja. But what I want to say is that jhana you could say, is a state of great faith. The four dhyanas, if you know anything about them, you, you won't, probably won't have been taught them as like this, but I understand dhyana as being experiences of deeper and deeper faith. So we get to this stage, and you're full of faith, serene faith, Yeah? And then you ask for the teaching. And this is a factor in developing wisdom, a very, very important condition. There are many conditions 
for the development of wisdom. But one of the crucial ones, most, one of the most important ones, is that you must really, really want that wisdom. Yeah. If you're not that bothered, nothing will happen. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't mind being wise. <laughs> I've got some time, you know, I'm a bit busy at the moment. Well, not much going to happen. But it's when you're prepared to walk 840 miles across India on your own. Give up, give up your home and give up your livelihood to get the teachings. That's when you're more likely to open up to the teachings. It's when you're going from town to town to town and then you're running up the mountain. At last you found the Buddha. You run up the mountain like a man who's just... If they get to the top first, they'll win the um, lottery. That kind of urgency... That's what we need, and that's what the puja is helping us to develop. So maybe it's time I read out the... Where are we? Interestingly enough, this verse comes in chapter 3 of the text called Adopting the Awakening Mind, the Bodhicitta. The first you get the verses of rejoicing, I rejoice with delight, etc. And immediately after that you get holding my hands together in reverence. I beseech the perfect Buddhas in every direction. Set up the light of the Dharma for those falling into suffering in the darkness of delusion. Holding my hands together in reverence, I implore the conquerors who wish to leave cyclic existence. Remain for endless aeons. Do not let this world become blind. That's it. Just those two verses. That's what makes up the entreating supplication. A couple of very short verses, but very, very important, I think. And I think I must be coming to the end of my... Oh, I have forgotten to tell you something. It's only a little one, though. I just meant... Ah, not bad. Yes, I've remembered everything except for one thing, which is one of my favourite writers is, uh, or was, he's dead now, a Canadian um, theologian called Wilfred Cantwell Smith. I'm sure many of you have heard me talk about him because I talk about him quite often. Really wonderful man. Um, He was a theologian. He was also a lay Christian minister. He was also a comparative religion scholar with a specialisation in Islam and he taught at McGill University and he wrote a very very important book it's important for Christians at least but personally I think it's important for everyone called Faith and Belief the difference between them there is a big difference between faith and belief we won't go into that now what I want to mention is He doesn't define faith in the book, but he does at one point say that faith is made up of two aspects, insight and response. Insight and response. I think that is so important, a way of understanding what faith is. Faith isn't just some, it's not belief, it's not this kind of, oh, let's try and believe that. It's... When you hear the Dharma, I'm sure you remember yourself when you first either came here to the centre or you read a book or something and something hit you. When you first 
have faith in the Dharma, you have faith in the Dharma because it's helped you see something. Or maybe you've recognised something in what you've read. You think, yes, that is so true. That is so true. There's an insight there. There's a definite insight, knowing response. And I've seen this countless, countless times when I'm teaching beginners on Buddhism courses. You can see their eyes opening and sometimes their jaws dropping. And they're so excited and they've got so many questions and it's just great. And then half of them don't come back next week. (laughs) And you think, what happened there? What happened? I've got no idea because nobody ever contacts me to tell me why they didn't come back, so I really don't know. But they seem to be so engaged. So it's as if they haven't got the second part or they didn't follow through. It's made up of two parts, insight and response. And the response, Cantwell Smith said, is a yes. Yes. This is the truth. And yes, I'm going to follow it. I am going to try to live my life in the light of this insight. That's what the spiritual life really is. It's made up of those two things. Insight and response. So now we come back to this thing right at the beginning. I was talking about call and response. Call and response. Why do we do things in call and response? Why don't we just give you the book and say, we're going to do this in unison? Sometimes we do because it saves time. You can do a puja in half the time if you do it in unison. (laughs) But um, call and response. Perhaps, perhaps it's because the call is the insight and the response is you saying yes. Yeah. So, after the entreaty and supplication, it has to be a wisdom reading, not a faith reading, not a f- reading of devotion. It has to be a wisdom reading because now you're ready to really receive the Dharma. And that's why we have the Heart Sutra after the Sevenfold Puja. And don't worry if you don't understand it. You just hold it there like a jewel on a, on a velvet cushion. You don't have to do anything with it. Just let it affect you. Saluting them with folded hands, I entreat the Buddhas in all the quarters. May they make shine the lamp of the Dhamma for those wandering in the suffering of delusion. With hands folded in reverence, I implore the conquerors desiring to enter Nirvana. May they remain here for endless ages so that life in this world does not grow dark. So we say that in call and response. This evening, I'll say a line, you say a line. Insight and response. Insight and response. Leading up to a period of silence and then a wisdom reading. And then, hopefully, something will happen deep inside you. And that's why... We do the puja. And then, of course, then, after the Heart Sutra, after the wisdom teaching, comes transference of merit and self-surrender. Because now, after that, you no longer experience yourself as a separate self. You're there for the universe. So now you transfer everything that's yours to everyone else in the universe. You're just there for everybody else. And that's why it comes in that section.